Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Chapter 21, starting verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now this is how he did so. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel, who was from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples of his were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. We will go with you. They replied. They went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. When it was already very early morning, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? They replied, no. He told them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they threw the net and were not able to pull it in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, tucked in his outer outer garment, for he had nothing on underneath it, and plunged into the sea. Meanwhile, the other disciples came with the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards. When they got out on the beach, they saw a charcoal fire ready with a fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish you have just now caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish. But although there were so many, the net was not torn. Come, have breakfast, Jesus said. But none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Then, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? And said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, Feed my sheep. I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. Now Jesus said this to indicate clearly what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. After he said this, Jesus told Peter, follow me. The word of the Lord.
My parents had migrated from Rwanda in the 1950s and settled in Uganda. So to some people, oh, I was really Rwandan, even though I had gone to Rwanda only once or twice as a young kid. And I didn't speak Kenya Rwanda, but I was really, really Rwandan. But I counted myself Uganda. I had a Ugandan passport. But I was kind of that, in that kind of in between. Growing up in Uganda as a child of immigrant uh, parents uh, that talk now and again about Rwanda. But I was curious, after, especially after genocide, to want to go back. And because I'm wondering, uh, what, what role would my family have played if I'd been in Rwanda? And then discovering the whole story of my parents, having come from north, the north of Rwanda, uh, one a Hutu and another a Tusi, mm. very unlikely uh, coming together. So that added to my confusion. <laughs> it was a, a Ugandan or maybe a Rwandan, uh, parents from Rwanda, but one Hutu, one Tusi. So who am I? <laughs> Those questions of, uh, of, of identity. So we tend to assume that identity is natural, that identity is given, that that's the way I am born, and therefore I cannot do anything about it. Well, how about people like me? <laughs> so there is a, a bit of confusion. Who am I? Mm -hmm. Who are my people? I call Uganda as my people, but Rwandans too are my people. Uh, and then, of course, I wrote this book when I was uh, at Duke, teaching at the Methodist Seminary. In Duke, training Methodist pastors as a Catholic priest and working with Methodists and all the other non-denominational evangelical Christians and so forth. And most of the best of my friends and students and so forth were not, not Catholic. I was actually one of very few Catholics there. And finding rich community there, and I, I would say, yeah, I claim the Methodists and others as my people as well. I began to find these kind of stories, especially the story of this uh, Confused boy. Remember the story I tell of the the, the, the the Hutu boy that had been raised by the Tusi, and then during the genocide he fled, and then they saw him and said, "No, no, you 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 okay? You had you can't go back." And going back, they wanted him to participate in the genocide, but he couldn't because he was overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And I began to see that as a metaphor uh, for Christian life, an invitation into this kind of confusion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A confused uh, identity existence toward something better, toward a new we, as I describe mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So I use that kind of image and really taking seriously my own life as a pilgrim, uh, traversing all these different identities, uh, but trying to maybe bring together in my own life the many fragments uh, of life. And I use this. The, this is the metaphor, really, of identity. We are all fragments of many stories. Mm -hmm. The tragedy is one story many times seems to want to claim us. You are this. You can't be the other. You... And I think that's a source of much violence. Are we? What defines us? 
what defines you, what defines me, um, what fragments of stories are shaping your identity, are shaping your identity. Those are questions we're going to be exploring today with Dr. Emmanuel Katangale, and, and I'm so glad to be here with you today to explore and respond to these questions. Uh, I'm not sure answers is the right word. In fact, I am sure that it's not the right word, but, but response and exploration, I think, are exactly what we're going for here. What defines us? What, what defines us? Peter, I think, was struggling with that same kind of question. Who was he? What was his identity? With all of these fragments of the stories that, that had been shattered at the crucifixion and, and now uh, beginning to be reassembled following the resurrection, wondering who he was. He'd, he had been, before he met Jesus, a fisherman. He'd been a follower of Jesus, living with him, sleeping under the stars, seeing miracles performed, uh, living through storms and other frightening and traumatic experiences, going hungry, going cold at times, and, and, and then declaring his love for Jesus to be a faith, declaring himself to be a faithful follower of Jesus then denying Jesus three times and now who is he who is he with all of that mixed up inside of him he says to his friends I'm going fishing. We don't know exactly when he went fishing. Um, we do know that Jesus spent several weeks with his disciples after the resurrection. John tells us that this is the third time that Jesus had appeared physically to his disciples following the resurrection. We don't know exactly how many days since Sunday this is. Probably not too many. And, and Peter just needs to get away. To get with something familiar. To rediscover who he is. Um, but Jesus, we'll see, calls him out of that familiarity for a while there. He's out on the boat. He's fishing. Someone comes up on shore. They, he calls out to him, uh, asks them if they have any, if they've caught any fish. That's something you never ask a fisherman, by the way, unless you know they've caught something. They can get really testy about that. But he called out, asked them if they caught any fish. John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Peter jumps in the water, swims to shore. The other disciples follow after. They share a meal together. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Three times he asks him the same question. Three times, do you love me? First it's, do you love me more than these? We'll get to that in just a moment. And then two other times, do you love me? And we, we kind of know Jesus doesn't explain it. We kind of know that Jesus does this three times to give an opportunity for Peter to three times say, yes, Jesus, I love you, just like three times Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And so three times Peter gets to declare his love for Jesus. But through this whole thing, Jesus is shaping Peter's identity helping draw those fragments of stories together into a new identity, into a new, not just an individual identity, but as Dr. Katangle said, a new we, a new corporate identity, a new group identity. We, we see that in the way Jesus initially addressed them. From the shore, and you won't get it in most English translations. I didn't look at a whole bunch of them to see if any of them got it right, but I, don't, I, I think maybe one or two get it right. Most of them have Jesus calling out something like, Friends, did you catch any fish? One of them even has Jesus saying, Fellas, fellas, did you get any fish? In the Greek, the word is very clear and the meaning is very clear. It's, it's paideia, not to be confused with piata, which is a 
very nice little restaurant, but that wasn't what Jesus was calling them. He called them paideia. No one laughed when I did that at the parking lot church either. I'm sure someone out there in, in online land laughed at that, but probably not. So calls them children. That's what paideia means, is children. Jesus said, children, have you caught any fish? This is significant because it's the only place in the Gospel of John where Jesus calls his disciples children. He calls them other things. The night before he died, Jesus looked at him and said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Why didn't he say friends? He calls them children. The word children is used two other times in the Gospel of John. And, and the first time... Jesus isn't using it. A, a government official is coming to Jesus and saying, can you hurry and come to my house and heal my child before he dies? Paideia, children. And then in that conversation Jesus has with his disciples, with his friends, the night before he dies, he, he, he shares with them, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You're going to suffer a lot, but there's going to come a time when the joy will surpass the suffering. And, and he says it this way, um, in John 16, 21, when a woman gives birth, she has distress because her time has come, but when her child is born, she no longer remembers the suffering because of her joy that a human being has been born into the world. Her child is born. The only other time Jesus uses this word paideia is here when a child has just been born and Jesus calls out to his disciples, children children. Jesus did talk about being born though. You remember that conversation he had with Nicodemus all the way back toward the beginning of his ministry. Nicodemus, a, a, a Pharisee, a, a biblical expert, a highly moral person, a highly religious person, really struggling, coming to grips with this notion that Jesus was the Messiah. And, 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 and Jesus said this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came and asked him a theological question, a doctrinal question, and Jesus answered him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. Born a mother, once her child is born, rejoices in her child. And Jesus, standing on the shore of that lake, called his disciples children. I wonder if Jesus was saying to them, after all these years, after all this time, after, after having seen the miracles, experienced the miracles, after suffering, after, after failing, after the trauma of the crucifixion and this amazing, surprising joy of the resurrection, after all of this, you've finally been born anew into the kingdom of heaven. Children. Maybe Jesus was the one also that was suffering until his children were born. And now he calls out to his children. The amazing thing about being a child, it's a time when our identities are formed. And it's not an event, it's not a moment, it's a process. And a lot of things play a role in shaping and forming the identity of a child, the identity of a person, the identity of a group of people. A lot of things take place, a lot of things have to move. There are a lot of forces and a lot of voices that compete to define us. 
tribe and politics, partisanship, skin color, race, ethnicity, gender, economic status, educational background, geography, the neighborhood you're from, the the kind of education you have, your physical appearance, all of these things shape our identity and compete to do that. And now Jesus, Jesus is reaching out to shape not just Peter's identity. He has this conversation in public. The other disciples are right there. He's shaping their identity, forming what I love that phrase Dr. Katangli used, a new we. A new we. No longer just a fisherman. No longer just a friend. But a child born anew, becoming, for Peter, a shepherd under the authority of Jesus. There are a lot of things, though, in Peter's life, just like there are a lot of things in ours that compete to shape that identity. But identity is the key thing here. Identity is the key thing. I've got another clip. I hope, again, as uh, uh, Dre said earlier, we've been having some technical difficulties with, with by, if the good Lord is willing, we're going to have another clip here from Dr. Katangali. If not, I'll just tell you what he said, but uh, I'd rather you hear it from him talking about this business of identities. That is what Christianity is at its core, is to form new identities in the world. Um, it's not just to affirm the identities that are, in place. I find the invitation uh, to the Romans by Paul, uh, I think Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may learn what is pleasing, true, and good. And then Paul is saying again, offer your bodies as a living servant. That, that is the stuff that politics is made up. Where are you willing to stand? Where are you willing to put your body? Uh, so I, I feel that is a, the greatest challenge in a way of uh, Christian uh, Christianity. In the West, predominantly, but, but, but around the world, because we have really assumed that Christianity is this innocent, spiritual reality that kind of takes care of our souls and helps us to be good people, uh, but for the rest of politics and economics, uh, it leaves everything in place. The challenge is, how do we read the Christian story as a political and economic story, as an invitation into new forms of identity, as an invitation into new forms of community that, in a way, exist the usual, traditional, ordinary distinction, whether black or white, American, and so forth. I think that's a far deeper form of engagement. So this is the goal of Christian mission, according to Dr. Katangle, and and I find this very freeing in a very real sense, that the goal of Christian mission is to form new identities. Not just in individuals, but certainly individuals, but new corporate identity, a new we, a new willingness to put our bodies in new places to be around new people. 
that has political and economic implications. But this new identity, this forming of a new identity, this can leave us very mixed up. It can be very, very confusing. Dr. Katangle talked about that in the sermon, or the clip we showed at the beginning of the message, that, that he was Uganda, lived in Uganda, but people there didn't think of him as Ugandan because his parents were Rwandan, even though he had a Ugandan passport, but he didn't speak Rwandan. And one of his parents was a Hutu, one was a Tusi, which was very unusual in those days. He was a Catholic priest teaching at a Methodist seminary. All of these fragments of narratives left him confused and mixed up. Identity can be very confusing. It's like Taylor Swift. Is she a pop star or a country star? Who knows? It's like, you know, Lil Nas X. Is he a rapper or a country star or a shoemaker? Who knows? We'll leave all of that to be sorted out. I got a little laugh on that one. A little laugh. Like the mixed up boy Dr. Katangli referred to in the Rwandan genocide, um, which that genocide was played in the West as if it was ancient tribal divisions that had erupted again, leading Hutus to kill Tusis. Hutus were killing Tusis, but it wasn't an ancient tribal rivalry. You can read about it in the book. Watch the interview as well and the other videos we have on 24 Billion Stories about the book Mirror to the Church. And you'll see that, that and I just got to be real brief about this, that the genocide in Rwanda happened because of Western politics and Western Christianity that came in and created new identities among the Rwandan people. Before the Westerners uh, colonized uh, Rwanda, Hutu and Tusi were just divisions of labor. Hutus tended to be farmers. Tutus, Tusis tended to take care of animals because animals were a primary source of wealth. The Tusis tended to be more wealthy and had a little more power than the Hutus, but they shared governance with a third, much smaller group within Rwanda. Then the, the Western colonists came and they were from Europe and they looked at the Hutus and they looked at the Tusis and they brought bad anthropology, bad science with them and they said, you know, the Tusis look a little more like us. They're a little taller, their skin's a little lighter, their noses are a little narrower. They were literally measuring the width of people's noses and they said the Tusis are more an advanced civilization because they look more like Western white Europeans. And they placed the Tusis above the Hutus. And then the missionaries followed closely on the heels of the colonizers and they baptized bad science with awful theology and said, yes, the Tusis are descendants of Noah's blessed son, Shem, and the Hutus are descendants of Noah's cursed son, Ham. And so God says that the Hutus are more, or the Tusis are more advanced than the Hutus. And in the name of bad science and bad theology, those Westerners put bad identities on the Hutus and the Tusis and set them up as one over the other. And when, then when the, uh, the, the Western colonists pulled out and the Hutus struck back against the Tusis based on an identity put on them by this world in the name of Jesus. Identity can get so mixed up. It can get so mixed up. And when we talk about getting a new identity from the church, from God, from Jesus, that can feel, people I can I know are on their guard, understandably so, because how badly the church has messed up this issue of identity for so many years. Putting, taking what is a political, cultural identity, calling it a Christian identity, and forcing it on people. 
It's like Jason Bourne and Treadstone, you know? Uh, brainwashing and trauma to suppress your old identity and put a new identity on you that isn't really yours, but ultimately leads to lots of violence. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's doing the opposite. See, the reality is that it's the world, bad science, bad theology, church operating in its worst, that's putting a bad identity on people and suppressing the real identity, the true identity that God already designed into you. And what Jesus wants to do is strip away all of that other stuff so that your real identity, our real identity, can come out and shine forth. But how do we do that? How do we get past all of these other competing forces? How do, we, how do we strip away the politics and the partisanship and the economics and the race-based garbage and, and, and the gender-based garbage and, and all of the things that try to force us into an identity that is so much less than what God has for us? Where do we go for that? I asked Dr. Katangale that question too. Let's hear what he has to say. Where, where should we go? Where can we go to discover that new way? Uh, to the margins. To the margins. To the poor. Hmm. The excluded. The racially discriminated against. That's where we would go to discover this new community. Um, race, for example, in America. How we exist in this kind of very neat silos of black and white. I'm glad that the church is biracial or interracial and so forth and so on. Uh, and that's the very good of worshipping together. If we can move a step for closer of eating together, but eating together, that means also economics. That's an interesting, yeah, that ended real abruptly. That's hard to know he was coming to an end there. He wasn't coming to an end. That's just where I stopped the clip. Watch the whole thing on YouTube. We go to the margins. How do we get formed into this new Christian identity? We go to the margins. We go to the people who've been racially discriminated against or, or discriminated against on the basis of gender or, or some other status, where they grew up in the world, what their education is, what their neighborhood is, all of these different kind of things. Go to those folks that have been pushed out and pushed to the side and marginalized and excluded. We go to them, but we don't just, we certainly don't go to them to fix. And we even do need more to, we even need to do more than just go to them to worship together. As good as it is, and, 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 and Dr. Katangale called that out, it's so good that we as a church gather as a multi-ethnic body and we worship together and we walk and we work and we worship together. But did you hear that challenge at the end? Can we, can we go deeper and eat together? And how we tied that to economics. Do you know where you eat is an economic reality? Do you know in a church as economically diverse as Garfield is or in your place of work or in your school? School, school, you want to know how important it is to eat, how, where you sit to eat and who you will eat with? Go to a high school or a junior high school, middle school lunchroom or ask kids that are in high school and junior high school. They will tell you who you eat with matters. And if you eat with the wrong person, you will no longer be in the middle. You will now be on the margins. And that's true, I don't care where your school is located. Who you eat with matters. It's a, it's a political decision. It's an economic decision. 
When you go out to eat, do you realize that not everyone in this church can go out to eat at the same place you go to? And some folks can't go out to eat at all unless you're paying, and that gets real embarrassing for some folks real fast. Are you willing to go to someone's home to eat? Into a neighborhood that you might think of as dangerous to eat. It's probably more that is just different than your neighborhood. That some neighborhoods maybe are dangerous for some people. Eat together. That you know, it reminds me of that verse in Proverbs that says, As iron sharpens iron, so does a person sharpen the countenance of their friend. That iron sharpening iron, it happens by contact. It happens rubbing together. And, and it doesn't happen, you know, just one time. It's an ongoing thing. It's a repeated thing. It's over and over and over again. And that image suggests not, suggests that diversity is central to the core of our identity, central to our identity, just as it's central to the gospel, because you don't sharpen a knife by rubbing it against another knife. You sharpen a knife by rubbing it against something different than a knife, a file or a whetstone. That's how you sharpen a knife, by, by rubbing up against something different. And if we want to be shaped and formed and molded into this new we, this new identity, to receive this Jesus' definition of who we are, then we've got to be rubbing up against each other more than just once a week on an ongoing basis. Sitting down and spending real ordinary time together, sharing a meal, just talking about the stuff that people talk about, just being an ongoing regular relationship with people that are different from you, different from you, for me, different from me, economically, ethnically, educationally, all of those other things. Politically, putting our bodies next to each other and spending time together so that we can be shaped by them, they can be shaped by us, you can be shaped by folks different from you. And they can be shaped by you. There's good news in that. That's how God forms this new we, this new identity, this new definition that we have. The bad news is, is we get really mixed up. See, the mixed upness doesn't end with Jesus. The mixed upness really begins with Jesus. And it hangs on. I, I'm, I've been there. I've been in this situation internally for a while now. Like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I grew up this way with this kind of culture and this kind of beliefs and this kind of politics. I'm going this way now and that way on this and that way. We got, we've got a conference form. This is, this is getting recorded. I hope the bishop doesn't see it. It's, it's an awful form um, that pastors have to fill out every year um, just in case we get moved to another church in this conference, and we're supposed to list in a, in a couple of words how we would describe ourselves theologically. And what they're looking for is liberal, conservative, progressive, Wesleyan, and, and, and it's a mess. When I, was, when I was 26, 27 years old, I had no problem filling out that line. Now, I put like 12 different things on that line this time just to be irritating and obnoxious, but also because it's true. You know, I'm liberal, I'm progressive, I'm conservative, I'm evangelical, I'm, I'm Franciscan, I'm kind of Wesleyan, I'm a little bit Armenian, I'm kind of holiness, I'm a little charismatic and a little Pentecostal. I'm mixed up. And that used to bother me until I, I talked, I had this conversation with Dr. Katangle, and he pointed this out. He said, he said, Jesus is mixed up. Think about that. Jesus's identity is mixed up. Who was Jesus? He was fully human, born from Mary, 
He was fully God. How does that work? The church has been wrestling with that since the church began. You know, and, and us being the knuckleheaded people that we are, we fought and killed each other over that question. Is Jesus more God or more human? Was he God that just took on human form but wasn't really human? Or was he human that just had, you know, but had some divine attributes? You know, let's fight about it because that's what Jesus would want. And the church decided on and settled on this notion. God was fully human. Jesus was fully human and is fully human. And he is fully God. And that's mixed up. It doesn't make any sense. One of my seminary professors, Bill Mallard, described it this way. It's like if you have one, you know, an eight-ounce cup of water and an eight-ounce cup of oil, and you mix them together and still have eight ounces. And it's all oil and it's all water. It's both. And it's not now 16 ounces. It's eight. That's how mixed up Jesus is. So as followers of Jesus, can we expect to be anything other than mixed up too? Part of it is it just takes a while. You know, there's that moment when in baptism and we, we grieve. I gotta I just confess, I'm a little sad today that, that this, this is normally baptism Sunday in the life of the church and we can't do that right now. I'm, I'm trusting and believing and hoping that we're gonna be able to do a baptism Sunday in the not too distant future. But as we go into ba- the waters of baptism and that word baptize in the Greek literally just means to wash, to immerse in water, to wash is how it was commonly used. I believe one of the things God's doing in baptism is washing away all of those false identities that the world is putting on us. But we still live in this world. And Peter still got it messed up even after this experience of being called by child by Jesus and, and, and blessed with this, this new sense of identity and purpose and welcomed into the family, forgiven as sweet as honey on his lips. I love that song. And, and and yet Peter still messed it up. And there were times in his life when he operated out of that old identity and those old narratives. No, I can't eat with you and I can't eat that food because I'm Jewish and you're not. And Paul called him on it. And Paul still messed it up who said, you know, we're all one in Christ Jesus. There's no male and there's no female. But over here in this church, we don't let the women speak. They have to go home and ask their husbands questions if they want to know anything. We still operate out of these old identities at times. And it's confusing and it's messed up. But we can get there. We can get there if we're willing to do what Dr. Katangale says and put our bodies next to the bodies of people who are different from us and let them shape us in the name of Jesus. This is what God is doing in this world. This is what God is doing. It's like we're in a big old rock tumbler. I had one of those as a kid. You know, you put the grit and the sand and the water and the rocks in there and it tumbles and tumbles and tumbles and out come really shiny, beautiful rocks. And we're in this big old world, this this big old rock tumbler and God's mixing us all together. And every time we try to divide, God says, nope, I'm gonna put you right back together again. Given all of the division that there is in this world, it is hard to be hopeful sometimes. So I asked Dr. Katangli, I asked, do you see in all of this out there, do you see any signs of hope? Um, I'm going to play his, we're going to play his response to that question for you, and that's going to close out the message. So let's hear it. Do you hear, are there any signs of hope out there? Let's hear what Dr. Katangli has to say. First of all, as Christians, we don't have any uh, right 
to not be hopeful. God has saved the world, and we, we claim that. And, and but also there is an invitation in 1 Peter, always be willing to give an account of your hope. So for us to share the stories of hope. In the of the church, I share some of these stories of interruption. I call them stories of interruption. Most of the hope is actually at the peripheries of church life. Uh, gathering together, black, white, Latino, and so forth, is, is, is a sign of hope. That at least together we can gather and celebrate and so forth. But it's an invitation to go deeper. I see hope in, for example, your collaboration with the church in Liberia, kind of really saying, you no, know, the boundaries of continent are not strong enough for, for us who believe in the body of Christ. I see hope in non-Christian uh, settings, in non-Christian uh, gatherings. Following George Floyd's murder, for example, the cry of lament was very clear. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And this man died. But following that, this instant coming together of people saying enough is enough. We need to address the question of race. And that's the congregation for me was black, white, old, young, and I saw an Ephesian moment mm. in that. Can our Christian communities nurture and cultivate this Ephesian moment, this kind of coming together? Uh, in many ways, in a way, the church of God is happening outside the church. You know what I mean? Like, like, like in that, you, you, you catch a glimpse of, of, of that. This is where, as church, we, we are invited to learn from, again, the stranger. <laughs> Our antenna being open to see where the heart of God is doing, what the heart of God is doing beyond us, I think gives us the courage to say, well, yeah. We can't move in that direction. We, we can't be more of that. We, we can't be about that, about radiating that, about nurturing that, mm-hmm. about fermenting that, that kind of Ephesian uh, coming together.